You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. It was like uh, I caught a skating fever or something. You know, I didn't even come home that night. I, I sat there amazed by all the skaters and all the music and all the power and all the energy in the rink. And uh, the next morning I, I went and bought me some skates and I've been skating ever since. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Leon Chase. Hey, Mike. It's great to be back. Also joining me in the booth this week is Mr. Benjamin Buxton. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me here. This week, we're discussing the 1980 film from director J. Terrence Mitchell, Get Rollin'. It's the story of three very colorful people and their lives in and around a roller rink in Brooklyn. There's Vin Zarelli, who also goes by Jigaboo Jones, Pat the Cat, and Inez Davis. This is a movie that I had heard about and read about for years until I finally until it finally escaped and was uploaded briefly to YouTube. It may still be out there somewhere, but not by the same person who uploaded a few years ago when I finally found it. That said, I'm not sure if I should give a spoiler warning or not, because I don't think many folks have seen this beforehand. Likewise, I'm not going to ask either of my co-hosts this week when they first saw the movie, because I'm pretty sure neither of you guys saw this before I asked you to be on this episode. But please correct me if I'm wrong. I am actually really glad that you invited me on this episode because I had a chance to see this movie a couple of years ago in Los Angeles. There was like a rare 16 millimeter screening of this film at a place called CineFamily in Los Angeles, and they had the director there in person. Um, But I was like working that night and I missed it. So I'm like, I was really bummed. I never got to see it until now. What did you think of the movie? Uh, initial impressions were I just like loved how I felt so engrossed uh, on the rink culture. I mean, the, the movie does this amazing job of just like um, kind of oscillating between 
the world of the lives of these characters and then just like the total energy uh, of, of what's happening on the rink. So I love how, how sucked into that world I was able to get and almost get like hypnotized before it kind of snapped out and said, no, there's like these lives happening off the rink too. Leanne, how about you? What'd you think? You never disappoint. I, it's not easy to surprise me these days with um, truly obscure new pop culture things and you always deliver. So thank you. Uh, you know, this is so up my alley on so many different levels. I mean, you know that I love the era. Um, there's a couple great van shots, not to get ahead of ourselves here. Um, also, I am actually an occasional um, recreational roller skater. That's one of my current midlife crisis activities. And I'm also in Brooklyn, and I'm aware of what's left of that culture now. And also I'm aware of the empire roller rink. And when I was doing my most recent documentary, I was researching the history of empire and, um, actually got some great footage from, from a later time, but before the empire closed in like the mid two thousands. So yeah, I mean, just to find out that there's a movie shot in 1979 set at empire rink in Brooklyn was, um, that was an easy sell. Let's put it that way. I have tried to talk to Jay Terrence Mitchell over the years. I talked with him briefly, gosh, I think it was probably like five, six years ago on LinkedIn. Of all places, I found him on LinkedIn and was trying to talk him into coming on the show, doing an interview, those kind of things. But he did send me some press releases, those kind of things from the time. And I was just amazed at how how big this movie was at the time that it got seven mentions in the New York times that it was mentioned in quite a few national newspapers that it ended up being one of the top 10 films that the New York times had in 1980. That's absolutely crazy. And I'm curious if we will ever see a legitimate release of this thing because it is wall to wall needle drops of some great, great songs. And from the beginning, from the opening shot where you get these two little lights off in the distance and they start playing dance with me. And as soon as the music starts, I'm like, Oh my God, I know this song. This is amazing that they had this in here, but every song in this movie is something that, you know, and something that I imagine these days would be really cost prohibitive to put out for like such a small, I mean, the, the target audience for this film today, I can't imagine what it was probably in 1980, a little bit broader of an audience. But right now I think I'm talking to two of the people that might have been interested in this thing in 2019. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, like, you know, I, I, I've made a film also that includes like some music from like a live space like that. And in the hope as a director is that you can always like claim fair use because that's just in the space. And that is naturally what's happening in the environment. But it, it becomes pretty obvious fairly quickly in this film that um, sync sound was definitely an issue. I mean, they're just out there on the rink and they're just like playing over the soundtrack and, and kind of like cueing in these different sound effects from the skates so that soundtrack quality definitely like is obviously a huge challenge and, and is kind of beyond us in, in this age of, of lawsuits. Do you think that they just ignored the legalities at the time, or do you think it was just much easier to include popular music back then? I'm very curious what they ended up doing, because they have music credits at the end of the movie, so it seems like it's legit, but... I'm not sure. But then there's always the whole thing of you have rights for film. And now this is, you know, home video was just in its infancy at this point, really didn't take off to the mainstream until mid eighties. So at this point, 
nobody's thinking about home video releases, so you probably just had rights for a theatrical run, maybe you know a limited theatrical run, and after that, that's you know, it, game's over. So I think you would have to relicense everything if you're going to ever put this out on any sort of home video format. Because it's not a documentary. Like, at first, I thought this was a documentary. Because after this opening shot where it's amazing, it's these the two lights that I talked about in the distance end up being lights that are on roller skates. And it takes up the whole opening credits. Really just gorgeous. And then we get introduced to Vinzarelli. And we get a really nice interview with him. He's getting his hair done. He's talking about how roller skating has changed his life. Well, I realized right away I wanted to create an image. I wanted to create a character which would attract people to me. And I wanted to create a character that would be very, very advantageous to the place, but also non-threatening, which is how Vinzarelli Jigaboo came up. Jigaboo Jammers came up. It was a funny name, a name that fit into Brooklyn, a name that was was very uninhibited, a name that was, uh, to, to a lot of people, very comical. Nevertheless, when you can make somebody smile and make somebody laugh, then you make somebody be in a non-threatening situation. So I created the character, but then I realized, but I can't skate. So I had to get good. After that, we get uh, introduced to this guy named Pat the Cat, but it is very quickly thereafter when you start to see that they are actually not doing a documentary, that this is kind of a, a docudrama, I suppose, where parts of it seem like they're documentary and then other parts are obviously staged and we're doing shot reverse shot of Pat talking with his manager and Pat has this whole dream that he's going to, I guess go to England and become a world-famous roller skater in England, and that becomes kind of the thrust of the movie. And I had no idea that he and Vinzarelli were partners until right towards the end of the movie. I felt like I missed a whole lot of stuff because you you were talking about sync sound. I was having a lot of trouble kind of understanding some of the dialogue when they were having these more narrative moments. Yeah, I think that's uh, definitely true. I, I There was a New Yorker article that talked about how those departures into uh, fiction were sort of uh, miscues. And, and the New Yorker article was very critical of the film, saying that like it, it was unfortunate that it got bogged down with all these departures. Um, but I kind of disagreed with that. I, I, I think that that is like a very um, natural move, in, in my mind, to the sort of energy that you encounter in those environments. I mean, people are there skating, they're being very expressive, and they're talking about their dreams. They're talking about their hopes and their desires. So I think if this filmmaker had any sort of like close contact with these characters, which it seems like he did, it seems natural to me that they would come up with this idea that like, yeah, let's like do a film that highlights and showcases the performance, but let's take it a step further. Let's make it more than that. Um, because this is such a vehicle for self-expression and self-creation. It's a launching point for a lot of other ideas. And this idea of mixing documentary with fiction, I mean, it's been around pretty much since cinema began. And I really picked up on uh, the the use of that in things like Eastern European cinema, like uh, stuff that Foreman was doing with Loves of a Blonde and The Fireman's Ball or Makaveya with Man is Not a Bird, where you're mixing real-life characters with a narrative that's going on. I'm not sure exactly how successful it is in this film, but I do really root for these guys, and I root for Pat the Cat. It feels like 
at the end of the day, this is Pat the Cat's movie, that he is the one who is doing the majority of the narrative work when it comes to this. And to that end, it kind of reminds me of other things that were happening around this time, things like Saturday Night Fever. I think Fame was a couple years after this, but it has that kind of hard scrabble, I want to get out from under kind of an attitude. I don't know if it was just the New York setting or that it was something to do with the dance or entertainment world. But these guys, I mean, I felt really bad for Pat the Cat when he quits his job, goes down for an audition, is giving it his all, auditioning for this one white guy, and then the guy disappears. And you just feel like, oh my god, he just wasted his chance, and he quit his job, and now his wife's going to have his ass. I'm probably closer in opinion to The New Yorker, that I think definitely the weakest part of this movie is when they try to go into what's obviously the improvised uh, docudrama portions, and Maybe if they if they pull it off uh, a little more efficiently, it, it would be less awkward to me. But a lot of it is like sitting through like an improv one hundred and one class, and um, you know, there's parts of particularly the wife where I think I think she did a really good job. But that all of like I think in general they could have eliminated that and gone a little more into just who these guys were, and I still would have been completely interested. As soon as I realize that there are fictional elements, then I start wondering, well, how much is fictional? Is that woman really his wife? It personally just, um, it throws me off a little bit. And I also, I, I'm not as big a fan of Pat the Cat, but I'm sure we'll get into that. <laughs> I really like Inez, but she's only on screen for just a few minutes. And it's like, I really wanted this to be a three, you know, a three-legged stool, but she's just barely there. And we see her you know, roller skating, kind of doing her thing. And I didn't even realize that it was the same woman the first time that I watched it, that we go from her skating to her in, I guess she's in Central Park and she's helping out the guy who has a wooden leg and no right arm. And that was one of the best moments of the movie. And I was like, I want more of that, please. And I don't even think she comes back ever. She was really interesting, not only as a woman in that scene, but also that she had this life that seemed like pretty serious and probably very stressful. She was doing, I don't remember the specifics of it, but she's basically doing like social work or medical care or something like that. And then doing things like teaching this guy, like you said, the, I think it's one of the best scenes is just seeing this guy with one leg and also a 1979 version of one leg, which I'm sure was not very complex and you know, she's teaching this guy to skate. And I was like, yeah, I'd like to see more of her. Like, what else is she doing? Is this what her week is like? That scene really was utterly compelling. I mean, it was just such a reprieve from, like, all of the, like, uh, pandemonium that had been going on previous to that. Um, and obviously, like, the energy of, of the rink coming out. And so to just see them, like, quietly in the park and, like, him relying so heavily on her uh, was definitely uh, beautiful and, like, so poignant. And And I agree, like... I could have used more moments of that, but at the same time, I'm a little bit forgiving. And then I feel like it's just like a nice, tiny kind of like golden moment that you get in the middle of the movie. I really tried to put on my detective hat with this movie quite a bit. And um, because the the gentleman that we were talking about with the um, prosthetic leg and, and no arm, he says to Inez at one point, I saw you on 2020 and you didn't look nervous. And I was just like, oh well, that's cool. Why was she on 2020? So I was trying to look into old episodes of 2020, like around 1980, 1979. I couldn't 
necessarily find anything and all of these people in their imdb credits they're just you know here's one thing that they did i think vincerelli might have one other credit but that's about it and so a lot of this led me into diving into newspaper archives. I found a nice article by Vin, uh, about Vinzarelli from 78, where he was talking about the Jigaboo Jammers and his skate crew and all this. And again, I felt like I really wanted to know more about this guy. And we had that one great interview that they cut back to a few times where he's getting his hair done. And there's moments of him playing the sax, things like that. But I'm like, man, I really just sit this guy down. I want to hear more about him. I want to see more of him actually skating because I didn't feel like I saw a whole lot of him skating. We get to see some good Peppa Cat skating, but I really wanted to see more of all three of these people just enjoying themselves on that rink. Part of me wonders, though, if, if, if there was some sort of hesitation or, or self-consciousness on the part of the filmmakers and, and the creative team behind it to think that, like, they were just making a documentary film. And, and maybe there was some hesitation around that because, you know, like, the sort of cinema verite style of that time was still pretty ill-defined, I guess. Um, and so I wonder if there was, like, a need to, like, let's make this a fiction film because that'll be taken more seriously. Yeah, like, it's maybe a little bit ill-thought out, but I, I, I don't know. I could see them having that conversation. I loved Vinzarelli um, exactly for that reason. And, um, you know, like, I think Benjamin's correct that there were probably was, and I'm not sure that they had a sense of, of what their priority was when they started shooting this and, you know, when the drama or whatever came in. But like, I just found Vinzarelli fascinating because he's just so far out and so obviously a one of a kind character and kind of wacky, you know, he's got this amazing van, he's got this sort of Sun Ra thing while he's playing saxophone, like, just, like, so far out and cool, but also, like, incredibly conscious. And his conversations were, I mean, he just goes straight to, like, very large issues about the community, um, has an incredibly um, incisive opinion on, you know, just where he fits in and, like, the struggles of, like, uh, people from that community trying to you know, do business or, you know, and otherwise, um, you know, progress for themselves. And I thought he was just really eloquent and interesting on that front. His custom van is so amazing. I could have just done with a documentary about that in itself. Absolutely. That mural just would not stop. And it's just like, yeah, show me more about this. I want to see everyday life in Vincerelli's world. And yeah, he just was just such a fascinating character. And then you get the moments where it's like Pat the Cat going to that pool hall and he's talking smack with those guys. I'm just like, what is going on? Why are you so angry at this one dude? I just did not pick up everything that was being laid down in this movie. <laughs> so it was just making it a little confusing at times. And yeah, I kind of was more towards the show me more of the documentary, but then I was pulling for these folks towards the end of the movie when Pat the cat and Vincerelli, they're finally united. And there's that dude who's got kind of like the, the Bob Keeshan uh, mustache going on and the white man's Afro kind of thing. And it's just like, okay, what, you know, is this guy going to screw them over? And then them and the limousine and everything. I was just like, Oh wow, this is going to be great. They're going to go to England. And I guess they're going to start their roller disco careers in England. I don't know why it was such a dream to go to England either, but they really wanted to go there, man. It felt like, you know, taking the bus down, to Florida that, uh, you know, that, that they were doing a midnight cowboy or something. It's like, we're going to have our dreams fulfilled when we get to England. 
I was definitely thrown off by that too. And in and, and that, uh, that man you're referring to with that mustache, he just kind of like appears in the film. The, the same way that the other man kind of disappears, this kind of guy just shows up and it was kind of never defined who he was. I assume he's some kind of like talent manager who's like there to sign them potentially or something like that. But they're just like hanging out. And, and, and yeah, this like, London as sort of this like symbol of making it right. Like that, if we can only get to London, we'll prove it. But then even that's kind of like detracted in that scene when they're sitting there being like, well, I don't want to just show up to London and not have any like game plan. Like if we show up to London, like how are we going to get back? Like then that became a further discussion. So it's, it's really interesting to see like how even the fiction itself breaks down. And like you guys are saying, like clearly fairly improvised, um, so to see them mess around with that trope and maybe not necessarily know where it leads obviously gives us even the end of the film. It kind of makes me want to see what John Cassavetes would have done if he had been able to get Seymour Cassell and Peter Falk on roller skates. I just want to see that movie now. You know, you know, I, I live in New York City and, you know, it, it's always fun to sit and watch movies, especially from past decades and sort of spot places you know in the city and the the most infamous one being french connection which i'm sure you guys know where they basically paid off a couple cops didn't get the proper permits to shoot that legendary car chase scene under the tracks and uh i thought of that because there's a moment toward the end where pat the cat is skating out of the battery tunnel in brooklyn which is also a very steep incline that man is working incredibly hard in that scene and i'm just watching that thinking like did they have the budget to shut this this major tunnel down in New York, or did they just like give the guy at the booth a six pack because it was 1979 and like you know shot it in ten minutes? Like and then you know there's a couple of those where he's like in on 42nd Street and like really crazy places where you probably shouldn't be on roller skates. And I'm just I'm really curious to know like how they grab those shots. There's that really awesome shot. Is he like going across a bridge or something? It's it seems like a bridge in the background, but I can't really tell. But it's like this huge structure. Okay, it's a and he's coming towards the camera. That shot is just it. It is worth the price of admission alone. Yeah, he's on the Brooklyn Bridge, which is also no joke because that is not um, very even pavement, and there's an incline there as well. So that man was definitely working for whatever they paid him in those scenes. Going back to the idea of the fiction, though, like, I, I basically agree with what's been said, that, like, it is clunky, and, like, the m film probably would have been stronger if it was just focused on the documentary aspects of it, but that whole final sequence of Pat the Cat just racing across town... Um, I think only works in a fiction film almost. I mean, I don't know. It would be interesting to see that in a documentary film of just like throwing in this person kind of having this like sporadic, almost fever dream because he's going like between traffic. He's coming like in and out of like the smoke. He's coming in and out of a tunnel and all alone in like the like biggest U.S. city. Um, it, it, it's just crazy that they were able to pull that off. Um, and so I guess the question I'm asking is, like, would that be possible in a documentary film for that scene to have paid off in the same way? The reality of, of someone actually doing that much skating anywhere, especially in, an, in a major city, is you're right. If it was a documentary, if it was being sold to me as a straight documentary, I don't think I would really believe that that was that guy's commute. So I think it's a really good example of where they were successful and and obviously piecing together a little bit of fiction for us. Um, but I think they, he sold that really well. 
And I kind of like the way that it ends, too. The way that we have that freeze frame of him as he's getting onto the plane, and then it's like a clip of uh, this inspirational speech that he's giving, and then the film ends. And I think that was the perfect place to end the movie, because we don't really know what the next step is for these guys, and they're not going to give us a title card to say what happened. Leaving us in suspense is probably the best thing that they could have done. They really made the right choice in obviously keeping these guys' um, emotions and feelings, if that's the right word. As much fiction as they're obviously putting on top of the movie, like that sentiment from him at the end is obviously real. Like that speech is obviously heartfelt. Like these guys do have some sense of trying to make it or get out of whatever situation they're in or otherwise progress in life. And in particular, I mean, I just had some moments, especially when um, Vinzarelli's getting really serious about it, where I'm just thinking, man, it's like 1979 and you're putting your money on Roller Boogie. And it's just that's a tough one to watch. <laughs> Again, I think that is why I am uh, such an advocate for the like the clunky fictional aspects of it, because if it had never gone to those depths, uh, if it had never taken those side steps, rather, and it was just purely documentary film. Uh, I don't think we actually get to take part in their sort of self-creation act. In other words, a documentary would be pure spectacle, whereas fiction, I feel like I'm actually getting kind of wrapped up in their process of self-creation, including the foibles. And, and so I think that final scene is a little bit more poignant because of that, because we like have felt through the process of their self-creation through this like fiction documentary, the sadness and, and kind of like the dark aspects of, again, putting your, your life in, in the hands of this spectacle that's kind of probably dying out. And it is now, and it probably was then. On the subject of self-creation, I think you're right. And also that I was struck by the details of these guys' subculture, the idea that it wasn't just enough to go out and be a good skater. You also had to create a character, and you have to have a name, and you have to have a shirt with your name on it and he never wears the same shirt twice and it's you know there's a, a huge emphasis on costumes and names and personas that's actually very reminiscent of other things like pro wrestling paris is burning came to mind i mean though you know obviously very different scenes at the time and you know just this idea even like um you know roller derby or drag they all have this thing of the costume and the persona and i i love that there's that aspect of these guys that there's there they are about this character and creating this particular image for themselves yeah this whole time we've been calling pat richardson pat the cat because that's what he's known as he's got the shirt you know he's got the the cowboy hat the six shooters and the really cool red velvet looking skates and personally i i love the look i love what he's doing i don't know if i would necessarily want him at my roller rink since he always seems to be kind of like going against traffic and stuff but <laughs> like the way he's dodging the the other skaters but it's like okay that's your thing man first of all i knew people who hung out at empire rink in its final days you know early 2000s before it closed and i'm pretty sure that pat the cat would not want to bring those fake pistols to the Empire uh, circa 2000. That would not have ended well and probably would have caused a lot of other problems for him. But yeah, you're right. His his whole thing about the dodging, I, I'm watching it going, I'm not sure how anybody else really feels about this guy in those moments. 
Yeah, on a, I mean, you guys have referenced some of the films that came to mind for you. One that came to mind for me was Gummo, uh, the Harmony Korean film, um, because in in that film, I think there is a real sense of play with iconography, like having these like children dress up in like bunny costumes, and like I think there also is cowboy costumes and just different things, and kind of like playing in the trash that way. And and there was something happening here, I think, with both of these characters, uh, Pat the Cat and Vinzarelli, where they are kind of playing with these i these i. Icons. I mean, you, you talked about kind of like the Sun Ra, like sort of futurism that's going on with Vinzarelli, but Pat the Cat just being dressed in this cowboy is just so stark. Um, and then there's the one scene where, where he's in the room talking about the act he's going to put on Lond- in London, and he sort of does this like almost gospel act. He's talking about like that he's come to bring the people in London the gospel of roller skating, and he's doing it while wearing this cowboy hat. And so it's just like this weird confluence of all these different American like uh, icons and subcultures, and, and and I just think it created this very kind of surreal moment that didn't feel totally like outside of history. It did feel like correct to the idea of of just kind of like perhaps some of the racial divide that's going on and the idea of like upward mobility within those communities. So I I was kind of blown away by, by those characters because of that. He has that kind of Bootsy Collins thing going on, but he's Vincent Vinzarelli Brown. So if he drops the Vinzarelli, he just becomes Vincent Brown and he can just go into the woodwork. I tried looking up this guy and look, you know, good luck looking up Vincent Brown. Look up Vinzarelli, you get a little bit more hits, though Google is trying to tell me that I'm actually looking for Fonzarelli the entire time. I wanted to ask you this earlier when you were kind of talking about trying to get in contact with the director and finding his LinkedIn. Do, do we know what happened to him after this film? Like, what, what has he been up to? Yeah, that was one of the things that I really wanted to ask him because it's just like, you know, he's still around and it seemed like – because there was a nice article about – where he came from, he's actually a fellow Michigander and went to MSU before he ended up getting into documentaries and doing this stuff. So I knew a little bit of his background, but I wanted to know, yeah, what what did this movie do? I mean, like I said, it was on the top 10 list of the New York Times best films for 1980. Did that open any doors for this guy? I'm really curious what happened afterwards, not just to Pat the Cat, Inez, and Vinzarelli, but also with the director, with the producers, all of the people involved in this film. Art uh, mirrors life then, right? Because at the end of this film, we're, we're left asking the same questions, like these guys are going to go off to London and what's going to happen to them next? It also strikes me as um, similar to a couple other movies that came out at the time that kind of became classics but weren't huge commercially at the time i'm thinking of wild style if you know that movie um uh the director's name slips me i'm sure your fans can help me out and there was also a, a movie around the early 80s about uh graffiti writers where it had it was it was obviously real but they were imposing stories on a little bit and you know i'm curious if there was a sense that they thought this was going to i don't know be bigger financially or you know because you, you're right you don't really hear about any of these people afterward yeah looking at his linkedin he's got something called mitchell swan entertainment from 2005 until now so the last 14 years i I would like to know what's going on jay terrence mitchell and i i have been writing to him for the last like six months going you want to be part of this and i just never got any responses so you know what's interesting is there's this 
seems to be resurgence of stuff on this subject matter or maybe a new crop of things. Cause I'm thinking about, uh, United Skates, which is about to come out on HBO, which I believe is a documentary about something similar. And then obviously, like, I was really surprised to see what Benjamin made, um, his short film that was set in Chicago, I believe. And, you know, I, it's, I, I'm just curious, like, these things come back and are we going to suddenly see more interest in this the way we've seen with, you know, other things in the last couple of years, I would, it would be really great to see this guy come back and sort of get his proper dues for a work like this, you know, Leon, I'm, I'm glad you brought that all up. Um, I'm, you mentioned a couple times that you knew of this roller skating rink and that it closed down in the early two thousands. Um, in, in kind of the research and what you saw around there, I, I mean, what, what did you see that was happening? I mean, is it just kind of the typical story of just like, you know, it's a declining interest and, and, and people aren't as invested in it anymore? Or, or was there more to the story of that roller skating rink? Oh, I think there's a lot to that place. Um, it was really the epicenter of a very serious and very vibrant culture. I mean, which I haven't really experienced too much, except, you know, the people that are left from it now who still show up at the one place you can skate in New York. The biggest problem in New York is that everything is about real estate and roller rinks just were not worth the amount of space and insurance and everything else they took up. So the two main roller rinks, which were in Brooklyn and the Bronx, all went away in the 2000s, um, mostly because of financial reasons. There were ongoing um, problems with crime. They were not in uh, what would be considered super safe areas at the time. But there was a, a huge culture that, in my opinion, didn't really go away. Like, I, I was very lucky when I was researching my own stuff. I found a man um, named Kappa Chris Robinson who had the the foresight to just videotape all this stuff while it was still happening up through like when Empire closed in the, in I think 2004. And I mean, it's just phenomenal. Not only the number of people, but the an insane level of skill and tricks and style that are going on. And again, the costumes, the personas. Um, my impression is that this scene was going strong and really up until they closed the rinks down. Well, I do want to talk about Benjamin's film because I saw that last year at the Chicago Underground Film Festival. And as soon as I saw it, I was just like, I want to talk to this guy because that movie blew me away and i i know we ended up giving you some sort of a, a, a an award for the movie i can't remember which award it was because we had like the cutesy names and stuff so i apologize for that but i mean it was fantastic and none of the judges could stop talking about that movie after we saw it the first time oh well, thanks a lot yeah it was uh i mean it was the made in chicago award because you captured the spirit and just that that slice of life and i mean just for folks who haven't seen it yet um, could you describe what goes on in your film yeah so it's a short documentary and what i attempted to do in it is just sort of give a viewer the experience of uh kind of entering into this atmosphere and the personalities and styles and character that just comes out of it so the the site that i filmed is called the rink it's in uh, south side chicago and it's one of the longest operating roller rinks in chicago it's been open since the 70s and so the people who skate there have been going there since the 70s and are now in their like 60s and 70s and even some of them in their 80s um so it's just this like large, very close-knit, tight-knit community 
that have created this style over decades. Um, and it's all very unique to Chicago. So that was something standing out to me watching uh, this film is how uh, distinct the style in Chicago was versus the style in uh, New York. So, yeah, the film just attempts to sort of like give a, a sample of the type of energy and, and character and personality that comes out rather than get into the history of it necessarily. It, it just is interested in, in the characters um, in, their, in their daily lives. And I should probably say the name of the movie is On the Rink. And the the other thing that I liked about it so much was just that it's this, like like I said, slice of life. And it seems to be that the roller rink is so much more than roller skating. It's this place for socialization. It's this place where you get to hear these different stories. And that you take the time to talk to these folks is fantastic. And that everybody seemed so comfortable with you. And I'm very curious, how did you kind of embed yourself as a journalist to make people feel that they could open up to you so much? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, I, I just showed up um, because I had previously, when I was in high school, I worked at a roller skating rink, but I was in Utah. And in Utah, we don't, I mean, we have no style whatsoever for roller skating. And so whenever I move to a new city, I'm just kind of curious about what the roller sk- roller skating rinks are like. Uh, so I found this one and just showed up and, and kind of got to know a couple of the people there. Uh, and there was a man who's featured in my film. His name is Calvin Small. And he's, he's like just a professional he's he's a wizard on his skates and he really opened up the place to me he just he was very encouraging he was uh, very happy to see the the skating get sort of some exposure and so he introduced me to a lot of people and and again my um my project was to just get to know people and have them talk about their daily lives rather than have them in a journalistic style tell me the story of their skate of skating or, or why they were there. It was just like, no, when you show up and you've been going there for 40 years, you're not constantly talking about the history of the place. You're talking about what you did that week. You're talking about your job. You're talking about your family. And so I just wanted to highlight those aspects of it, which felt far more naturalistic than trying to do some sort of expository um, look at it. Because there's been a lot of coverage on that. You can like go and like, you know, WBEZ even just released a little video, but it's again, it's just very cold. So when you watch those videos, you don't really want to be there. It just sounds like a report on a dying uh, hobby. And instead, I wanted to show why this hobby was ever alive in the first place. Yeah, I really that one of my favorite things about that movie you made is precisely for that reason that you are showing real actual people participating in a culture right now. And I think when we when we see things like this, particularly where people of color are concerned. I think it's important to remind ourselves that like scenes like this aren't just dead and preserved in amber for us to study. Like they stuck around. These people had lives, things move on. Maybe they get smaller, maybe they get bigger, but they are still happening. And I think anything that highlights these cultures and, you know, looks into them and shows people what they are with from a human standpoint and not just how can we rip this off? Spoiler alert. That's what, happened with roller boogie disco a lot of other things in history um you know i think it's just it, anytime you can show these people in their element as they are i think it's just really important to capture yeah i should say that there were many roller boogie movies i mean including the the one that was just called roller boogie and even uh, as part of my research for this and for an episode that we're doing later on in this month uh superfly there's a movie I think it was directed by Sig Shore and definitely produced by him called That's the Way of the World. And it was kind of a vehicle for Earth, Wind, and Fire. But there's a great 
roller boogie scene that happens in that movie. And that was more to the side of it. It wasn't necessarily at the front and center. And that was 74, I want to say. So roller boogie as kind of an extension of disco had been around for a while, but roller skating and dancing. I mean, that was an, a very popular American thing from what, at least the 19. 19- now you're testing me, but I, I know that roller skating goes back really to early 20th century. Right. And we would be remiss not to mention Xanadu. Oh, hell yes. Yeah, Xanadu, uh, Roller Boogie, Skate Town, USA, all a little bit wider. Right, exactly. Like, again, we're talking about how it sort of was kind of maybe a big culture unto itself in its own era. But it is like, it's sort of an odd thing to try and uh, represent because it's such a, I, I guess, in like modern vernacular, it seems a little bit dated, you know, like it seems a little bit dated to be on on, on roller skates and so to try and sort of emulate and show like the real uh, emotion behind that and how it's not just some like kind of silly expression, but it comes from a very genuine place of sort of self-creation and, and, and actualization. It was really like, I think, at least for me, what I was interested in, in, in um, portraying in my, my documentary. Where can folks go to see your movie? I mean, I just have it right now open on Vimeo. I have a website, uh, yearofthedogfilms.com, and it's on there also. Well, I will be sure to put that in the show notes for today's episode, because I really hope that more people get to see that, and I hope they get to see Get Rolling as well, because I think that despite, you know, we kind of ragged on some of the the non-documentary parts of it, but I think it's still really worthwhile to check out, especially as a time capsule of that era, just to see New York at the time, to see the roller boogie scene, and to get introduced to these people that are very compelling. And um, I did want to mention one thing I forgot, which was that speaking of Vinzarelli, he seems to have made a record right around this time as well, which was on the Panbro label. I can only assume that it's the same Vinzarelli because the name of the song is Skate Dancer. And it is a 12-inch Panbro record from 1980. So I assume it's got to be the same guy. All right, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Trouble is here. He wears $600 suit, drives a $10,000 car, and he carries two guns. One to stop trouble and one to make trouble. Ooh, I come apart, but now who? He was born in the ghetto. I didn't make it, baby, playing by the rules. Raised in the streets. I come apart, baby. But now fine. Trouble is this man's name. Checking trouble, sugar. Moving down the line. Trouble man. Ain't gonna let it sweat If you're looking for trouble, look out, cause trouble is here. Robin Hooks is trouble man. You jive him and he'll wash you away. Trouble man. From 20th Century Fox. Rated R. Under 17. Not admitted without parents. Trouble Man with an original Marvin Gaye score. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at Ivan Dixon's Trouble Man. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Leon and Benjamin. So, Leon, what's been keeping you busy lately, sir? Well, I put out my um, roller derby documentary, Susie Hot Rod Roller Derby Star. That is currently available for free on YouTube at the Character NYC channel or just search YouTube for Susie Hot Rod. I'm currently... 
neck deep in footage for my next documentary, which is about a local bar in Brooklyn that uh, closed down after being in the same location for about a hundred years. I'll keep you posted on that. Um, I also just want to mention a couple things for people who might be interested in the roller boogie scene, past or present. Um, there's a really good site called skategroove.com. They have something called the National African American Roller Skating Archives Project, where they're actually collecting I assume memorabilia and whatever else they can get. Um, so if anybody's interested in seeing that or contributing, check that out. And also, if you're on YouTube, there's a channel called Get Your Skate On, and skate is spelled S-K-8, number 8, on. I'm sure Mike can give you the link. They are currently keeping up with the scene in multiple cities, and they tend to collect some pretty great footage. Um, you can also... I believe Kappa Chris is on there. You can find some of his really great stuff from the 80s, or I'm sorry, from the early 2000s as well. And Benjamin, what has been keeping you busy lately too? On the Rink is just kind of wrapping up somewhat of a festival run. Uh, so it's going to be playing in Miami in March and then back here in Chicago, I think, in September. Um, so I've been doing a bit of traveling with that. Um, and while I'm not doing that, I'm currently in post-production with a film that I shot last August in Cuba. Um, I, I shot a film there with uh, some musicians who do traditional Cuban folklore. Um, so similar to On the Rink, where I'm kind of just getting into the individual quotidian lives of the band members and then highlighting some of their performances. So that was a project that I shot um, all on 16mm film, and so I'm right now in the, in, in the edit bay with it all. Well, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I've uh, I've been really happy with uh, the footage so far. I mean, it, it looks beautiful. The the performances are spectacular. The music's just very very beautiful. Um, and you know, editing is always I think the most prolonged process, particularly for documentary films. Well, thank you guys. Thanks again for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. Please head on over to the website projection-booth.com where you can find out more about today's episode. You also find links over to iTunes where you can rate and review the show and to Patreon where you can make a donation to the show. Donors get early access to every episode as long as I'm not running late. Every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.